Um, I pray that you would open our hearts, that you would encourage us, draw us close to yourself today, Father, as we speak even today about the idea of justice. I pray that you would give us a vision of justice through a vision of who you are. Let us not have a vision of who you are based on what we've experienced in justice, but let our vision of justice come through a vision of you. And today, let our minds be opened and humbled to come before you in, in peaceful, honest, responsible ways to take ownership of the callings that you've given us to worship you, and not just in song and in dance or in church attendance on Sunday, but rather uh, even more so in the fullness of our lives as it pertains from Monday to Saturday. We love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome, guys. Hey, I am uh, excited to chat and continue our, uh, our sermon series where we're just going to be talking about the next commandment. The next commandment uh, is do not offer or give false testimony. And so we've been talking about Ten Commandments, and I'm not going to lie. I'm really, I've really loved it. And uh, so much, let me, I just want to give an asterisk. So much of me wants to gather y'all down or me go down there. But I want to honor the people that are going to either watch, they're watching this now or going to watch this in the future. So I want to honor them and stay up here because I already thought, process, process thought uh, about even getting down there. And at that point, all you'll see is darkness here and a bunch of light over there. And so that's the only reason I'm not going down there with you. But I do want to. So... Um, I've been really excited and just enjoying the idea of the Ten Commandments. If I'm being honest, before this time that we spent in the Ten Commandments, I probably had really similar thoughts that you did, thoughts that we have not necessarily contradicted but definitely expounded upon uh, over the past eight weeks now, uh, where these things have felt so incredibly cultural and so incredibly, um, like they're kind of just this thing that we argue about politically they, they've been politicized in general, and so they're, they're this thing that stands alone, almost apart from Christianity, as this sort of like religious or political argument tool. And yet, once we start to explore them and we gain a vision uh, that they're offering us, it's this vision of who God is and what that means to us and how powerfully that should speak to us and how it shapes the lives of those who call him their God and call him their Savior. That's powerful, and, and it's beautiful, and I've really enjoyed it. And to be quite honest, I'm almost sad that it's coming toward an end now uh, because we are at numero, numero nueve. Uh, we're at the ninth one, and, uh, and we're, we're kind of barreling down into the final, final weeks here. But this last one, not to bear false witness, is, is I think it's, it's powerful, and I think it's beautiful. And um, it extends off of last week, which is do not steal. And uh, this idea of stealing that kind of gets extended over the course of the last couple of commandments. And so last week was do not steal, but this week is do not bear false testimony. Uh, and, and it kind of starts to show this sort of how they're all interconnected from here on out. And so let's, that's what we're going to do. I want us to, to go ahead and go in and read it, but I want to give you kind of like an idea to hold on to for the rest of the time. And it's going to be this, that, the, the kind of general big point idea. Uh, which is this, that this is a powerful invitation to see the world as God does. That that's what's going on here uh, in a simple idea of like, hey, don't offer false testimonies. It is a real invitation to see the world the way God does. Uh, so let's go ahead and read the verse and then we'll jump into it. Exodus twenty sixteen. Y'all want to read it with me? Y'all want to say it together? Yeah, let's say it together. Let's get you involved early on. Come on. There's only a few of us. That means you got to really give it your all here. All right, one, two, three. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Yeah, don't give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, here's the thing. Uh, I'm going to get to the subject or the idea of justice, which I think this points to. However, there's a couple of points that I really want to get out there before we get there that I think are important for us to navigate. The first one is that this verse absolutely extends to something like the idea of gossiping. This verse absolutely extends to the idea of gossiping. Gossiping being something that undercuts someone reputation, someone's reputation and kind of casts them in a bad light, uh, particularly in a way that's not true uh, and it casts a negative light on them. Now, I, I really quick with that want to offer some caveats that I think are really important in our day and in our age and in our lives. 
The first one and most particular, and, and I think the biggest one regarding gossip is this, that sharing truth about your life is not gossiping. Sharing truth about your life isn't gossiping. When something is troubling you, when you're having issues in a relationship, maybe it's with a roommate, maybe it's with a spouse, uh, maybe it's with a friend, uh, maybe it's with a coworker, picking the appropriate channels where you should share those things and sharing what's happening, that's not gossip. I've seen people be in extraordinarily difficult situations, I mean extremely challenging situations, and they feel rather imprisoned by those situations because the person they're having issues with, again, no matter what the relationship context is, has told them that if they share it, they will be gossiping. If they share it, they're doing something wrong. If they share it, they're violating that relationship in some way, and they paint it as though the issue is a gossip or an honor conversation, and then we end up, those of us that have found ourselves in a situation, imprisoned in a difficult situation, feeling like we can't share what's happening. That's not gossip. Right? That's, that's not gossip, friend. Randomly bringing up someone's name and trying to make them seem kind of insufficient so we can make ourselves seem more competent, so make ourselves seem stronger, make ourselves seem smarter, right? That's gossiping. Trying to make yourself look better through making someone else look worse, that's, that's gossiping, right? That's kind of expounding on what we talked about last week, where you're really stealing someone's admiration, this time not by trying to make yourself look bigger, but you're trying to steal someone's admiration by trying to make someone else look smaller, right? And, and this is what this idea is speaking to, this idea that, man, that, that, that's troubling. Don't, don't steal from someone by trying to steal people's admiration, steal people's approval, steal people's affection by undercutting other people that you're scared will gain that same affirmation, especially when it doesn't have anything to do with you. Meaning like the affirmation that someone else gets and the affirmation that you get oftentimes aren't, they're not against each other. Sometimes they are, and those are difficult and challenging situations, but oftentimes they're not. And so that, that's the idea, that, but, but that idea, they're two sides of the same coin, whether we're trying to make ourselves look bigger through puffing ourselves up or making ourselves look bigger by cutting someone else down. This commandment extends to that type of gossiping with the caveat that we are not to be imprisoned by, uh, by this as a threat of gossip, but we, when we pick the right channels, share it with someone we trust, share it with a pastor or close friend, and you share the things that are going on in your life relationally, that's okay. That's important. The second thing, the second thing that I want to point out before we get to the conversation about justice is this also tells us uh, how powerful our speech is, okay, that it has the ability to hurt others, and to bless others. And I don't mean manifesting things. Like if you're like, oh, I hope they get in trouble soon. And it's like, that just saying that over and over again is going to somehow make them in trouble. I'm not saying that. Rather, what I am saying uh, is that we can offer life or lies through our words. We can offer life or we can offer lies. We can offer life to someone who needs to be encouraged by encouraging them. We can let them know what we see in them. We can let them know that we believe in them that we're behind them, that we're here to offer support to them, right? We can also offer life to someone who needs to be corrected by correcting them, by offering the reality that there's something not right here. And calmly and patiently and mercifully, I'm not saying that you, you remove all those characteristics during correction, but rather we can correct in a godly way to try and see someone who has strayed away from God's ways and God's character be brought, bra be brought back to life through the correction of saying, hey, the direction you're going, the way you're conducting yourself, how you're living, it's not okay. You can bring life like that. But the thing is, you can also offer lies. You can offer, offer lies when you correct someone that actually needs to be encouraged. And the thing is, we don't oftentimes think about that, but how powerful is it in moments that when we lie to those that are hurting by telling them simple but unfair things like God never gives you more than you can handle. I want to lovingly tell you that's a lie. God oftentimes gives you things that you can't handle. Most of the stories in the Bible are stories of people who could not handle the thing that God called them to. And in the midst of that story, what became evident and the point of the story, the main theme that was meant to go through the entire story was not the insufficiency of the person, but the beauty of their God. So maybe in our lives, maybe in your life, 
maybe in the life of the person who's struggling, the life in the person, the life of the person that's hurting, maybe we're not meant to go and offer them what amounts to a lie and try to pep them up by saying God never offers you or gives you anything that that's too much for you to handle. You can handle it. One, it's a lie about who God is. It's a lie about their circumstances. And though we don't even realize it, it's an indictment about their strength. We give them a sort of, a sort of bar that says, here's how strong you should be. God sees you as this strong, and you're not living up to that. You're weak. It's the implicit thing that we're saying. So these simple lies, they seem simple, but they actually can hurt people by offering platitudes that don't help, that aren't loving, by correcting people that need a loving touch instead of a corrective push. But we can also very much so uh, lie by offering encouragement to those that do desperately need correction. Some of us get lost in this world where we see the character of Christ as only mercy, as only grace, as only affection, as only affirmation. And then we end up losing the ability to offer life to someone who, again, needs correction. That's what we said. Because we think that we're, we're helping them by, by not correcting them, when actually we're, actually we're enabling them. Right? Our job is to align ourselves with the full counsel of God. That means this idea of understanding what God desires for the world, what gives him pleasure, and what makes him angry. And then we have to try and hold those things in tension. That's our job. In relationships, that's still our job. It's our, relation, it's our job when it's, when it's our lives, when we realize, man, there's things that do make God angry. There's things that do make God disappointed, things that he does not want for his creation, that he doesn't want for my life, and there's things that he does. And I'm trying to walk and live that out the best that I can. And in relationships, we're meant to do that same thing. We're holding those things in tension. We're not all one or all the other. Yes, be merciful, but don't sacrifice justice. Right? Yes, be patient, but don't enable injustice. Be humble, but don't remain silent. That's the weird tension that we're meant to walk out. And it's hard because comfort tells us if I have a conflict, I'm either going to fight or I'm going to run. Or I think the other one is like you freeze like a deer, right? But I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'll let you know right now, I'm all in the action zone. I'm ready to confront every little thing that happens. And it's comfortable for us oftentimes to give ourselves to one of these things and to say being fully in one of these things is where I feel comfortable. I want to confront someone and I want to let them have it. Or I want to sit in the back seat and kind of say, oh, I'll, let, I'll kind of just observe while, while things are happening. I won't say much, you know, but, but yeah, everything's fine. When in reality, when we hold them in tension and we recognize that I'm to, to conduct myself in mercy, I'm to conduct myself with care, but I'm also to instruct and to try and bring things to be as whole and as beautiful as they can be, right? That's the calling. When we're living that calling out, I think beautiful and powerful things can happen. I oftentimes, in my own personal life, will, will try to remind myself with the words, uh, speak truth in love while speaking truth to power. This idea that I can, I can express frustration, I can express disappointment while still retaining mercy and love. <sighs> This idea is extremely hard, and it takes seeking God's guidance and the help of his spirit, seeking men and women of God that can give us wisdom. Uh, but when, again, when we walk this tension out, it's powerful. Um, now, to the third idea. And this is what I want to spend the rest of the morning talking about. And that is specifically the idea of justice. This is about our hearts having a vision of justice that comes from God. And so every resource I consulted, whether it was a commentary or a dictionary or a theological journal, everything I could do to try and see what was happening here, they all pointed at different things uh, subtly, but one theme they all settled in on. This is important, right? Here's the main gist of what's happening here. The main gist was that this commandment was meant to preserve justice. It was meant to preserve justice. Okay, in those days with the absence of things like video evidence or DNA um, or, or audio that could be submitted to a court system, the judicial system of this time relied solely and exclusively on someone's testimony, on someone's witness. That is what all of justice depended on. It depended on whether someone was going to tell the truth about what they saw or whether someone was going to tell a lie about what they saw. And that's the entire building block it was all built on. 
And this commandment is, in essence, seeing that judicial system, seeing how vulnerable it is, seeing how important it is, and then finding a commandment that, that preserves it and protects it by saying you are not to ever offer false testimony, particularly in a judicial system. And what that looks like is saying, I want you to honor, I want you to value the idea of justice. I want you to value the fact that when someone who is guilty is enabled and preserved by someone lying on their behalf and they're unjustly set free, it's injustice. At the same time, when someone who is innocent is lied on and they are punished for something they didn't do, it's likewise injustice. But when people are able to offer the honest testimony of what they saw, then we can try to preserve the idea of justice to the best of our abilities, and that's the aim of God. That's God's aim. But, but I think before we even get here, we probably need to take a step back and ask a simple question. What is justice, though? What is justice? And why does God value it so much? And why does God want you to value it so much? Why does God want me to value it so much? What is it? And here's the thing. The words used for justice in the Bible, uh, they are almost all tied back to a simple idea. And it's the idea of making the right judgment. Some of them have the connotation of ruling. Some of them have the connotation of governing. Some of them have the connotation of, of making, uh, kind of enacting almost like judgment as in vengeance. But they all tie back to an idea that's similar to making the right judgment, right? This idea of doing what's best for yourself, the people around you, the community around you, seeking the wholeness of that community. And there is actual evidence, um, and I'm gonna tr I'm, I wanted to go full nerd on this, but I'm not. I'm resisting the urge. You're welcome. Um, that this idea in the Bible's ancient language of Hebrew was also closely related to the idea of shalom or the idea of making something whole. So this idea of justice was related to the idea of making something whole or making something right. That's what this idea of justice is pointing to, making the right judgment so that the, the best possible outcome, so that wholeness or as close to wholeness that we can get is achieved. And this is exactly why it's so incredibly important to God, right? And it's why he desires for it to be so incredibly important to us. It's why it's so close to his heart. It's why he longs for it to be close to our heart. Because at the end of the day, one of his roles as God is that he is the judge. He's the judge. He is the judge, not a judge, but the judge. The judge whose voice is the most affirming and resounding voice above all the voices. And for some of us, whether watching or here, that can be really triggering because we have felt extraordinarily judged. We have felt harshly critiqued. We felt marginalized by people or by opinions. And so oftentimes, especially now, when we come into church environments, the, the idea that God would be judged is actually quite triggering and it's quite troubling. And yet, it's not something we need to be triggered by because God as judge is not a bad judge. But he's not a crooked judge, right? He's, he's, he's not a, a prejudiced judge. He's a good judge. The Bible calls him a righteous judge. It means that in the, midst, in the midst of injustice, in the midst of heartbreak, in the midst of the brokenness and darkness that the world presents us, he as God, he as a righteous judge is always seeking and always finds what is best for the world and what is best for his people, best for his creation. That's the vision of the judge that we have in God. That if justice is making the right judgment and it's seeking to try and make things whole, or as close to whole as they can be, and God is the righteous or the best judge, then it means in every single moment, in every moment of injustice, God is not crooked or persuaded or prejudiced, but the righteous judge seeks to make and does make the correct judgment that leads to wholeness. That's the vision of God's judgment that we're given in the Bible. That's who he is as judge. And do you see what's beautiful about this? You see what's powerful about this? that there is a God that sees you and loves you and that he holds you in every moment of pain and he stands before you in every moment of guilt. And that God who sees you in your pain, the pain that can come from the injustice and brokenness of the world and the guilt that comes when we have perpetuated the darkness and the brokenness of the world, that God does not stand there seeking to try and figure out how to get back at you. 
nor does he try and marginalize or preserve the highest group in effort in, in a sacrifice of those that are marginalized or weak or hurting but rather that god that stands in front of you in those moments he seeks the best judgment and he offers and desires to come in and make things whole that that's the god that's before you in the midst of your own judgment that's the god that's before you in the midst of the pain that you experience from injustice it's so easy to forget why we believe that God is truly a, it's a beautiful thing that he's the righteous judge. It's a beautiful thing. Why? Because the God who seeks justice, the God who seeks to make things whole, the God who seeks to make things right, the God who will deliver the correct judgment when all of the opinions are scattered, we have so many voices and so many ideas about what things should be. That God, that God is the one who can be trusted. He's the one we can entrust ourselves to. He's the one that we can lay our life before him and trust that he is a good judge. That if we're guilty, he's going to seek to restore. And that if we're broken, he's going to seek to make whole. That's the judge we worship. That's the God who declares himself the righteous judge. Now hear me, I don't know how he's going to do it every time. <laughs> I ain't going to sit here and be like, here's how he does it, because I don't know. I, I don't know. And here's the thing, I want to grac graciously try and remind you, you don't know. We don't know. There are times when this vision of who God is and what he's going to accomplish, they force us to look at a man who dies on the cross for the guilty and the guiltless, for those who are, who are hurting and marginalized and those who have placed them there, it forces us to look and say, that's the ultimate expression of justice because I don't know how it's working itself out in my life right now. And the Israelites had this issue too. There'd be moments where they were like, I want you to kill their babies. And God would come back and be like, I want you to like protect the city of those people that you were wanting me to kill babies. Like it, it's hard. It's challenging. But that, I think that's exactly why it's, it's so incredibly important Right, for us to understand the character of God. So in the circumstances where it's teased out, in the circumstances where we're having to figure it out, we're not going off of the circumstances, but we're understanding the content of God's character as things that are beyond us are worked out, things that we don't have control of are worked out, things that we don't understand are worked out, and yet we rely on the righteous judge. Okay, so... That's what's the point. I think that's the biggest point here for this commandment is justice. That's the biggest point. Uh, and that's why he seeks to imprint it on our heart through this simple idea. Don't offer false testimony. Right? He commands us to set aside lying, conniving, bitter, jealous hearts and to pick up and embrace advancing the cause of making the right judgment to try and bring wholeness and restoration. That's what this commandment does. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, I think the first thing is we have to understand that there are two justices that we're navigating in our world. Okay, the first one, or, or the two are um, restorative justice and retributive justice. Some of y'all have heard this language before, some of you haven't. But restorative justice and retributive justice, right? Restorative justice is that which makes whole, that which restores. It's in the name, restorative. Retributive justice is the one that deals out punishment, the one that deals out consequences right, retributive justice, uh, to make retribution, seeking to make things right through the idea of making things even in some way, if that makes sense, right? Now, right off the bat, I want to offer you some wisdom, right off the bat. Uh, retributive justice, usually uh, the one that makes things even is something we need to truly leave to God and the judicial system. The invitation of, of God to say, hey, vengeance is the Lord's, those type of little little tidbits in the Bible, they're instructing us to leave the idea of retributive justice, making, giving out consequences, making things right by making things even, that that is to be left to God, is to be left to a justice system, because the wisdom required to know how serious, how long, or in what way someone should be punished in response to what they've done is a type of wisdom that very few of us, if any of us, have. We don't have it. It's not overflowing. 
You're not the one propped up on a, a throne who people come by and say, hey, this happened. What do you think should happen? Right? None of us are equipped with the wisdom that it takes to be a righteous judge, to know what the exact right decision is, and, and to seek to make things whole through it, even when it feels like things are being made worse through it, when it feels, again, like things are being, being made right by being made even. Right? Especially when the stakes are high. This is not something we should be grabbing onto. It's something our hands should be off of, to be quite honest. And, and let me add this. I say that understanding that this is kind of a dynamic that I would love parents to think about. Parents here, parents like watching, listening later. I would encourage us, and I feel convicted about this myself, to spend serious time thinking about what fair consequences and what fair punishments are. To use wisdom, to consult other people, right? Other parents build a council of godly people uh, to try and understand what is a fair consequence, what is a fair punishment for the things that happen in our home when people truly, when the kids truly fail to live up to, to, to really what God is, is calling us to and what the standards of your home are, right? Figure out a way to make a very wise and gracious decision in that. And if you don't know if a punishment is fair or if it feels fair, to just not do it. And again, I'm talking to me, not just you, I'm talking to me. To not do it. Because there's no better way to skew your child's vision of justice and your child's vision of the righteous judge than to continue to offer retri retributive justice that hurts them and hurts their vision of what justice means when it means to try and make something whole. And so that's challenging. So we offer this justice to something greater than ourselves, right? It's out of our real scope of our wisdom. We don't really have the, the wherewithal to know the right decision we made, so we offer that up. But here's the thing. This does mean that when we ourselves notice or take notice that earthly justice systems have failed, it should concern us as well. That if the wisdom of the earth and the wisdom of the earthly judicial system is failing, we should, again, take notice of it. Why? Because we value justice. So it, it, it's valuing justice, and when we are collectively able to see that something's not right, then all of a sudden we're able to express, or we should not be silent about it. Again, remember, be humble. Offer to, to, to God, offer to, to something above us the fact that, hey, I don't have the wisdom to make every right call. I'm not supposed to be making every right call. I'm not supposed to be handing out consequences to everybody because I'm not smart or wise enough for that. Don't be silent. Don't look when things are clearly wrong and just go, okay, well, that was what they said. I guess that's it. I mean, that was clearly wrong, but I guess I don't care. I guess so, so you, can, you can do both. And again, when, when we're holding these things in tension, something powerful and beautiful does happen. I think on a practical level, right, if we think about a major worldwide thing, right, we think about George Floyd protests. And I want to emphasize protests because during that time there were not protests. There were riots and looting and people that had no no value of justice because they all they did was perpetuate injustice in the face of injustice when they were running out with sneakers and tvs right like like and trust me i know the temptation to buy a pair of sneakers but it, there's a time and a place but that moment right was about elevating justice and those that peacefully protested man that was a powerful vision of what it looks like to, to know, hey, this is something that's not in my hands, but I also know that it's not right, so I'm going to voice my concern about it. I think on a local level, if we want to kind of be more local, uh, on, a, on a, a kind of more personal and local note, the pattern of DPS involvement in Austin, bit of a concerning thing. The majority of the distribution of DPS has been in Latino neighborhoods, and so that automatically means the majority of people they have stopped have been Latino and black. And, and that's not quite fair. It's not quite right. It doesn't feel just. It seems unjust. It feels like injustice when you, when you see what's happening there and you see what kind of that justice is being distributed, not, not fairly, not to make something whole, but it feels rather unfairly skewed. And so we're called to care enough to voice disapproval of it and to seek systemic change in seeing uh, the change in these things that we disapprove of. Right? We're, we're meant to take those steps to understand what we're voting for and why we're voting and actually do it. And, and taking those steps to try and see change happen. Now, the thing is, that's retributive justice. The form of justice that is often in our hands, though, is restorative justice. That is in our hands. 
This is the idea uh, that we are going to try and make things whole or make things right uh, around us. This is an idea that, that what we see missing, we want to fill it in, if that makes sense. What we see missing, we want to fill it in. A great practical example of this, I think, is our family advocacy ministry that we're going to start. That, by the way, that's the new name of our family support ministry. I've been working on it, and uh, family support ministry didn't have a certain ring to it. And so I came up with family advocacy, but then there was another word in there, and I sent the uh, organiza organizational document of, of, that kind of has all the details of, the, of, of what we're doing to a couple of people, and the first thing I got back was like, that last word's weird. And uh, ministry was the word that was, was encouraged to be put there. And so family advocacy ministry, FAM acronymed, I thought that was cute. So, so I decided that was great. But here's the thing. For that particular ministry, a great example of this. Why? Because it's seeking the idea, and this is in our document, our paperwork, it's seeking the idea of family wholeness through spiritual, social, and economic wholeness. Right, this idea that we're subsidizing counseling costs for families that are involved, trying to equip them with some professional skills, connecting them with resources across town. And the goal of that ministry is to, to connect them with enough things where what's missing is being filled in and what's broken is being made whole. Right, not, not uh, making things even with anyone else, not trying to compare what we have here to what they have in Westlake or whatever the case is, but rather just seeing what's missing and trying to make wholeness out of it, right? Making things whole in a specific situation or a specific purpose. Um, I believe this is the one we're called to more, this idea of restorative justice, filling in what is, what is missing. Uh, and, and yet here's the thing. As I was writing this, as I was thinking about this, I recognize that this is the one we feel far less equipped to do. It's funny. It really is. While I was typing this out, while I was thinking about this, I realized that this is the one it actually seems we're called to, and it's retributive justice that it seems we're supposed to take our hands off of and leave to God, and yet in our practical inclinations, in our practical desires, in our day-to-day -day life, it's the exact opposite that takes place. It's the exact opposite that happens. Because we, we can, depending on who you are, and there's various degrees to this, but we all like the idea of letting someone have it and giving them a piece of what's on our mind. We love that. Some of us have been sitting in traffic and like, oh, if I could punch that person in the face right now. Or better yet, that, that deep desire to be like, I, that person cut me off, so I want to go around this person, drive a little bit faster, and cut them off back, right? Like that, that feeling that just rages up inside of us, that wants to take retributive justice and say, I want to make things right by making things even. But that's the one we feel most equipped to do. That's the one we tend to grab onto most often. And yet, it's actually the other side that we're called to give. It, it's it's, it's kind of like the, these ideas swirl around in our mind, and we feel really confident doing that. We have to hold ourselves back because we feel assured in what we're doing. And yet, right, what about, what about seeing someone go from insecure to secure? What about seeing someone go from broken to healed? Right? What about seeing someone, what about seeing someone that feels unloved start to feel the beautiful embrace of what it means to be loved? What's funny is that when we see that one in front of us, we often go, that's too much for me. But I can make things right by making things even. But I think the biblical vision of justice is that we would actually leave this one to God and give ourselves to this one give ourselves to seeing people made whole and, and finding what's missing and trying to bring it into the picture. Why? Right, why, why is this the actual issue, though? Why is it that we feel so incredibly comfortable, right, just absolutely hammering away at somebody? I feel comfortable being like, hey, you didn't give me the right order. And you're being kind of rude, too, right? Like, why is it that we feel so confident in this one, but this one feels so scary? This one feels so foreign. We oftentimes feel so ill-equipped for this. And I would argue, I would, I would posit the idea before you. I'll just put it in front of you, right? You can disagree with it. This is just me. At this point, I'm pontificating now, right? I think it's because those that have experienced justice, it's those that have experienced justice that often offer the best justice. 
people that have experienced justice that often offer the best justice. And you may actually kind of think that's backwards. Because oftentimes it's experiencing injustice that then leads to someone advocating for those that have been hurt. Right, it's, it's understanding maybe what it was like to receive recompense that makes me like, ah, oh, maybe I'm not gonna just yell at that person. Or maybe it's being on the side of the fast food worker getting berated that you then walk away going, I'm not gonna berate fast food workers. That, that seems to be what we oftentimes think. But can I be honest with you? I don't think it needs or requires you being a fast food worker being berated to walk to a fast food worker and look at him and say, I'm not gonna berate you. I don't think that's the original calling. I don't think that's the original requirement. Or else all of us would need to be in extraordinarily difficult situations in order to offer anything related or, or just even close to what God's vision of justice is. And so I'm actually not saying that it's here that we experience the justice, but rather it's those that have experienced the justice of God that offer the best justice. It's those that experience the best justice, the right judge who's seeking the best judgment to make things whole right, that, that actually offer the best justice. Because here's the thing, the guilty, when we walk to God and we try and retain our pride, we try and, and save space, we never know what it's like to be fully seen, to be fully known, and to be fully loved all at the same time. Right, when, when we know what it's like to be guilty, to be guilty but to be still loved, to be fully seen but to be still cared for, right, that's when we're able to look at a guilty person, relate to what they're experiencing, and offer a, a compassion to them that we won't have on our own. Man, when, but when we don't ever come to God with the fullness of our guilt, when we don't ever experience the righteous judge looking and saying, because I want to make things whole, I'll die on a cross for the guilty so that the guilty can be made innocent. Right? I, when, we act, when we never do that, we just walk around believing that we're never wrong. We walk around never taking responsibility for what's actually going on in our lives. We never actually can receive correction from people. We oftentimes, when we fail to experience the justice of knowing what it means to be guilty, but to be forgiven and loved, we walk around assuming that we have to be right or else the ability to be loved is decreased. And so we hold on to every lie, every moment of pride, every little thing that we can, and we try and resist and separate ourselves from the idea of guilt or insufficiency. And I guarantee you every single person that lives in that way leaves a trail and, and just a, a full-blown road of hurt people in their path. Because there's a bunch of pride and anger that can come through, but never any ability to look and go, my bad, I'm sorry. I'll take ownership of it. I'm guilty, but I'm asking for mercy, and I will change. I'll turn away from that which was evil, that which made God angry, and embrace that which makes him, uh, that, 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 takes, that, uh, that he takes pleasure in, uh, and, and my life will change, right? And when we experience that type of mercy, though, and what a beautiful thing to know that I'm seen and known, but I'm loved. That's incredible. So we experience that type of mercy, um, and, and it can change us. I think one of the first times that this started happening for me is I, I got a $2,500 keyboard stolen out of the back of my car. I went over to a friend's house. It was in San Marcos. It was in one of the apartment complexes off of whatever, the something Springs Road and uh, Ocarina Springs Road. I feel really bad about that. I should remember that. I went to school there, but whatever. Um, and I went to a friend's house. I spent the night at this friend's house. I woke up in the morning, and he was like, uh, you know, didn't you play somewhere last night? And I was like, yeah, I did. And then I was like, oh, I never brought my stuff in. So I went to the car, and looked at the car, and I realized, and I can say it now, because I, I filed no insurance claims, uh, that I completely forgot to lock the car. And a $2,500 keyboard, the first guitar that my dad ever bought me, I was 13 years old when he bought it for me, um, a bag full of musical equipment that probably totaled about $3,500 worth of stuff, and it was gone. And I was so frustrated. I started freaking out. I drove home. Uh, I drove to my dad's house. And then I, I told him what happened, and he's starting to freak out. Um, and the thing is, I sat down near the island of the house, the island in the kitchen. And I thought about the fact that thieves, 
that like Jesus died for thieves. And there were thieves on the cross with him, one of which he fully embraces and invites to paradise. And that about the amount of times I felt like I had stolen something. I'd never stolen that much, but I had stolen something. I had stolen things in my life. And in that moment, my anger turned to what I could honestly only describe as like worship. I, honest to God, was like, I can't believe Jesus died for people like this. And it slowly turned into, I can't believe Jesus died for people like me. And the anger and vengeance that was burning turned into an honest desire for them to open my backpack that was full of musical equipment and just run into my Bible, which was also in that backpack. And he was like, I hope they read it, right? That's what you always say. I hope they read it. I have the Bible app on my phone. If they stole my phone, I hope they read the Bible app. But it, it turned into an honest desire for them to meet the Lord in some way. Now, here's the thing. I, I, I think that's, this idea is true on the other side, though, that if the broken have never been healed, if, if, the, if those who have experienced injustice have never experienced what it means to be cared for, to be made whole, to receive some, some uh, comfort, then likewise, individuals from this perspective will always look at those that are hurting and will always think that they need to be forfeited, that that pain that they're inflicting forfeits, that it just disregards them, that they're out. Why? Because we, we end up looking at those that have been hurt. We relate and project our hurt onto them. We have angerness, anger and bitterness toward that person that hurt me. And so I project that anger and bitterness onto the person that hurt them. And the same way I wish that they would just be flung into the far reaches of hell, I likewise say I hope that person is flung into the far reaches of hell. And it's only when we've experienced the beauty of the Redeemer and the Savior comforting those that are broken and marginalized. Right, when we're the, we're the adulterous woman, if you will, to use a biblical example, and, and we're thrust before the eyes of people and we're taken advantage of and we're hurt and we're shamed, and yet it's the Redeemer that steps in to say, I don't, I don't persecute you. It's when, we're the, it's when we're the sinners that Jesus sits with and not the righteous that, that watch him sitting. It's when we've been cared for by the mercy and love and compassion of the Savior that we're able to start to learn his heart and be comforted by his heart. That's the only way we're able to then advocate for other people but, but look at those that are guilty and, and not just write them off. It's, it's those that I think that are encountering the heart of God here can actually start to offer the best justice, the best vision of justice. And, and that ultimately, that, that vision is provided through the person of Jesus. I, I'm, I'm not trying to be corny, but I'm being honest. There was a reason that my heart, when my stuff was stolen, went to the idea that Jesus died among thieves and he died for thieves. Because it was, it was, beginning to dawn on me then, but I think I've, I've anchored into it much more now, that Jesus died for the guilty and he died for the hurting. That the strong became weak so that the weak could become strong. And the innocent became guilty so that the guilty could become innocent. That both those things are true. That they're held in tension at the cross. That like we said earlier, the perplexing idea that we could we could be humble, but not silent. That we could be compassionate, but, but not sacrifice justice is, is alive at the cross when the king who is strong becomes weak and embraces those that are weak and provides a refuge and a safety for those that are weak. And yet the innocent, the innocent becomes guilty so that he could do the same thing for the, for the guilty. That the oppressed and the oppressor are both found at the feet of Jesus is the beautiful theme and the, the truly, I think, the pinnacle of love and justice that's found when the king goes to the cross. That the oppressed and the oppressor find their home at the mercy, grace, love, and power of King Jesus at the cross, reconciling everything to himself and, again, making the right judgment to make things whole. Seeking justice. That's where me and you find our home. 
so easy is it to believe that it is actually the vengeance of our heart or, or, or the, the needs of our circumstances that, that are starting to tell us this is what it means to be whole, when in reality, and, and some of that's true, I'm not saying all that's not true, when in reality the first step to wholeness is not expressing our vengeance, nor is it finding resources, it's at the feet of the one who makes things right. Feet of the one who makes things whole. The feet of the one who sits, Matthew who works for the Romans, and Simon who's deathly against the Romans, sits him at the same table and says, your brother's now in me, right? It's that vision of the world, again, an invitation to the way God sees the world that we're invited into when we say, I want to value justice. What do you mean by justice? I mean making the right judgment to try and make things whole. That's our goal. That's my goal. As we begin to experience life when God is making us whole, when God is navigating through what we're going through, when we're actually bringing our hearts and our lives to the feet of Jesus, and we're inviting the Spirit of God, because I'm, I'm, I love things like counseling. I advocate. For, I, y'all can be talking about it dang every week. At the same time, I think the Spirit of God has an active part in counseling, and I also think the Spirit of God don't need counseling. I think the Spirit of God can just do what he wants to, and he has elected in some ways to work through things like mental health and mental health services, but at the same time, I think God can work through you today, actively deciding, I'm going to bring my heart to you, and I'm going to vomit it out to you. And I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where it's going to go. But I know that I'm vomiting it out to the righteous judge who seeks to make the right judgment and is going to aim and produce wholeness. That's our invitation. And that's why I say that I think that the beautiful introduction is saying I want to go offer justice is by us bringing our heart to Jesus today. By experience justice at the feet of the cross where the king dies for the oppressed and the oppressor to make things right. Now, uh, a couple of practical takeaways in this. Um, the first one is take responsibility. Take responsibility. What does that mean? I think it means a lot of things to different people. Some of us need to be encouraged. Take responsibility for the fact that, man, your heart's hurting. You need encouragement. Find encouraging people. Again, find the channels that you need to share that and share it. At the same time, Take responsibility for what you're doing wrong. Repent. Turn away. Make restitution. Make sure you're not going to do it again. Right? Like, like, take responsibility for where you're at. Understand that, that that's a crucial step in order to offer it to God is you first got to pick it up. And so take responsibility. The second thing, particularly regarding the idea of justice, is this. Do what you can, not everything. I think one of the things that scares us from the idea of actually doing something that produces justice is that we feel like we're not, we can't do everything. And can I be honest with you, you're not supposed to do everything. You just got to do your part. Your part could be as simple as giving out a granola bar to a homeless man or a homeless woman when you're driving home today. Your part could be actively working in like our family advocacy ministry. Your part could be helping out in some other way. Your part could be leading a whole nonprofit that makes change. I don't know what your part is, but you don't need to do everything. You just need to do your part. And I think a lot of y'all would advocate watching and hear that you, you've taken that step in a lot of ways. You're, you're at this church, I think, in, in large part because we value this idea that I'm setting up, you're talking about it for 40 minutes, that, that, that we value justice. You surely ain't here because of the convenience. You surely, <laughs> you surely ain't here because of the vast production level. That's not why you're here. Right, maybe you're here because you love some people and because you feel loved, but at the same time, that's putting you in the game of something like justice. And so I think you've taken that step. But, but do what you can. It's not everything. I, I'm trying to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and just use the, the one example that I had that I want to give here. Um, an, Jessica's daughter, Aliana, was at our house a couple weeks ago. Maybe a week ago. I can't remember now. I was watering the garden outside. You all know I like the garden. She walked outside, and she came to a baby, I mean a baby, baby oak tree we have in the back. Got to be this big. And we planted some other bigger trees, and then we have a big oak tree in the, in the front. And she came out and looked at the baby tree, and her first reaction was, what happened to your tree? Because it's a baby. It's not big. It's not a fat trunk. It's just a little twig with a couple of leaves coming off, and that's it. And I had the opportunity to kind of mention to her, well, it's a baby. And at the end of each branch, there's like this little node 
And this little node is, is new leaves that are coming out. And as each one of those nodes tends to bloom, the tree gets bigger, the tree gets taller. But it has to get watered, it has to receive sunshine. And eventually, in time, all those nodes working at the same time will produce a full tree, a big tree. But it's going to take time. And it's going to take each node doing their part. Now, I said that to you more eloquently than I said it to her. I ain't going to lie to you. I wasn't out there having an incredible Dr. Or, or, you know, Dr. Seuss moment. But I, I did think about that as relation to this. Do your part. Be the node. You don't need to do everything. Just text somebody and say, I love you. Text somebody and say, hey, do you need anything? Ask, how's that work situation going? Ask, can I help out in some way? Invite someone to church. Give someone some food on the street. Send someone a $20 gift card that you know is going through a hard time. All the little things that seem like they don't do anything, actually are a bunch of little nodes on a tree making a big tree that, that claims justice. So do your part. Right? It's not everything, but do your part, and that'll be good. Last thing uh, is seek counsel, which is just that idea of find wise people to speak into your life about things, whether it's sharing, uh, whether it's, it's those feelings of anger that come up when we're kind of like wanting the retributive justice and we're like, I'm going to make that happen. You need someone to talk you off that cliff, seek counsel. Um, if, if you're on the other side and you are struggling in a situation that is actually hurtful and painful, seek counsel. Seek people that you trust. Uh, I got to say, if the people you trust are like, oh, never leave that situation. You have to be there. That's not good counsel. But no, regardless, seek counsel of people that are going to be able to give you wisdom, that are advocating, again, for the best choice, the right judgment that brings wholeness. Okay? So uh, my prayer is that this can give us a vision of justice that is applicable to us, an invitation to see the world differently, an invitation to see our lives differently. And so... Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you for um, such a simple idea. Do not bear false testimony. Don't give false testimony. And yet, your invitation to us is to value justice. And that value comes directly from who you are. And so help us, Father. We love you. Help us to do that well. Help us to do that first by bearing our lives at your feet. Uh, at the feet of the king who died for the guilty and for the hurting uh, to bring us to you uh, whole. To bring us to you loved, to bring us to you affirmed, forgiven. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Awesome. Well, hey, because we are all hanging out today in, uh, in, in prime summer numbers,